But how you respond to when God says no makes a difference on whether or not you see Him because you're not the only one that God said no to. And neither is Paul. This is All Things New with Pastor Barry E. Fields. Take your copy of God's Word this morning. Open it, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And we are going to begin reading in verse 1 this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now some of you be careful, they're going to think we're Pentecostal this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Paul writes to the church at Corinth about what he's experienced. He says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was called up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And on behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't know what your holiday tradition is after going home today. Sometimes movie marathons come on, and I don't know about you, but I love the Rocky series. Is there a witness in here to that? Anybody like Rocky? Not very many. Okay, that's good. Too much fighting going on, kids. Don't fight. Rocky 1 through 4 are really the only ones that are any good. After you defeat communism in Rocky 4, there's really nothing to top that, and they've been trying for 20 years ever since. But Rocky is the proverbial underdog who lasts against the champion Apollo Creed. But I really think Rocky 2 is the best movie, and here's why. As Rocky's getting ready to have a rematch, with the champion who he's lasted the distance with and he's trying to defeat him. He marries his wife, Adrian. They find out they're going to have a baby. He's training hard and then all of a sudden reality hits when his wife becomes sick and she and the baby may end up passing away. So he stops his training, spends his time in the chapel and his trainer, played by Burgess Meredith, who goes by Mick, is really trying to get him to go out. He says, you can't quit life. You can't stop. You got to keep going. And he says, it doesn't matter. And finally... Towards the end of the movie, Adrian is made well, the baby comes, and they're all standing around, and Rocky and Adrian are super excited about this baby that comes, and you see Mick kind of off in the corner, and he looks out, and Burgess Meredith plays this perfectly, and he says, is that it? In other words, we have been waiting all this time, and this is what we've got. And while Rocky and Adrian are super happy that their lives have been saved, Mick just kind of wonders, why did we spend all the time doing what we're doing? You say, what in the world does that have to do with today? I'll tell you what. I'm afraid we're not a whole lot different 
than Mick when it comes to the resurrection. We will show up, dress up. Y'all look good, by the way. I don't know if we've got it all together, but y'all certainly look like you've got it all together. We should have taken church directory pictures today. You can dress up, sit up, show up, and fail to wake up to the reality of the resurrection. What I mean by it is this. We all understand at a certain level the importance of the resurrection. In fact, the Bible says, if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. If he's not alive, eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you die. We understand it on the eternal scale, this eternal weight of glory. But do we understand how it impacts everyday life? How many of us will celebrate Easter Sunday and go out of this place for the rest of the year never truly being changed? What difference does it make in my life? Is this it? Paul had dealt with that question on several of occasions. He knew what it was to ask that question. See, he thought he was doing the will of God. He went around parading things in the name of God, persecuting people who were Christians because he said, you're saying this Jesus raised up from the dead. We know it's not true. He's an imposter. And so he went around thinking that he was doing the right thing, thinking that he was doing better than everyone else. But when you think you're doing things in the name of God and you don't know God, you will be confronted by God. And that's exactly what happens to him on the Damascus Road one day. All the light of the universe, all the rainbows of the spectrum collide on his eyes. And he is blinded for three days when he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The voice is Jesus, and understand that when you persecute God's church, you are persecuting Jesus. He said, who are you, Lord? Who are you, sir? And he says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And Paul responds with words that will change his life. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And from that point on, Paul has been captured by the Lord, and he spends the rest of his life trying to grasp Jesus right back and I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this instance and several other instances in the Christian life. He says, whenever God means to make a man great, he always breaks him in pieces first. That's what God begins to do with Paul. Context of the passage is Paul has been writing to the church at Corinth. They don't believe his witness, and so he has to basically prove his credentials. He shouldn't have had to prove anything to them. He helped plant the church. But he's doing that, and he begins to be talking about realities that you and I can't see. He talks about the curtain of heaven being unveiled, as it were, and he sees things about which you and I cannot speak or fathom. He says, I was, I was caught up into this vision, and when I came back down, nothing was the same. That's the way it was for Moses when he came down off Mount Sinai with the commandments of the Lord. He was white. That's the way it was for Isaiah when he saw the glory of the Lord, and he says, woe is me, for I am undone. And here's Paul, seeing the glory of the living God, and lest he become conceited, the Bible says, there was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to buffet him, to injure him. We don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. There's a lot of speculation. Some thought it was some type of physical ailment and illness that Paul simply could not get rid of, and he asked God to remove it. Some thought it was some type of, of demonic person following him around. And really, if you look at a straight reading of the text, that seems very likely some thought that he was married, and that was his thorn in the flesh. Not going to go there. Whatever it was, Paul asked God to remove it from his life three times, and on three separate occasions, he got the exact same response. 
no. Have you ever had that happen? Something so burdens you down that you ask over and over again, God, get rid of this person in my life. Don't make me have to go through that. And God comes back after all your pleading and he says, no. It's really a crisis of faith for many, if not most people. And there's typically three responses that you'll have to that. You will either see God as good, you'll become disenchanted with Christianity and forsake everything, or the more likely option, you don't see God as relevant in your everyday life, and so you no longer bother showing up in His house. But how you respond to when God says no makes a difference on whether or not you see Him, because you're not the only one that God said no to, and neither is Paul. We talk a lot about Good Friday and the meaning and significance of us of it. People say, well, Friday's here, but Sunday's coming. Sometimes in our effort to get towards resurrection, which is a good thing, I think we forget to dwell on the in-between times. We forget about what happened on Saturday when the disciples had no idea what was taking place. We forget about the second coming of Christ when we don't know when it'll be. And in a certain sense, we are in Saturday mode for the second coming. But in this instance, I think we need to focus on Thursday, the night before when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying as it were, sweat drops of blood, and over and over he asked God, Father, if it be your will, remove this cup from me. And God says, no. Jesus responds the only way there is to respond. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And so here is Jesus, humbled, mocked, beaten, spit upon, crucified, so that the Father might one day exalt Him. And what by any reasonable expectation should have been His moment of greatest weakness becomes His moment of greatest strength. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And to the thief on the cross, one of which was mocking and one of which was asking to be remembered, He says to that thief, this day you will be with Me in paradise. All the forces of hell hardly are more insulted than when someone bound to go to that place is snatched up by Jesus Christ. This day you will be with me in paradise. And as they stood at the foot of the cross mocking his words, some king of the Jews come down off the cross if you're really the son of God. Jesus, you said destroy this temple and you're going to rebuild it in three days. Why don't you do that? Jesus knows something that they don't. They thought he was talking about a building. Turns out he was referring to his body. And out of this crucifixion, weakness comes resurrection, strength. I feel bad for the Roman soldiers in a sense because when they find out his body they think has been taken, Pilate tries to send reinforcements to the grave. He says, send reinforcements so that, that we can stop him. And you know, if you've got two guys at the tomb already and you send three or four more, a dead man coming back to life isn't going to do you a, a whole lot of good in trying to stop him. It's like the tidal wave of history is coming their way, and they're armed with a bucket. And if you're a southerner, you just want to say, bless their hearts. They're outnumbered here. Crucifixion weakness turns into resurrection strength, and God responds to Paul as he often responds to us, 
My grace is sufficient for thee. Because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And the apostle replies, most gladly, therefore, will I boast in my weakness that the power of Christ may rest on me. He'll go on and he says, for the sake of Christ then, in verse 10, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Here's how it makes a difference. Paul says the reason I'm able to go on is because Jesus got up. That's it. Jesus got out of the grave so that I can get out of bed, even on my worst days, and out of the brokenness of life, God is slowly but surely putting the pieces back together again. Brokenness. The things that people don't see when you come to church because you try to act like you have it all together. We're all broken. Different ways, broken homes, broken jobs, broken families, broken marriages, broken dreams. But it is our brokenness that ultimately leads us to God. You can't come to the Savior until you know that you're a sinner, that you need His strength. And who but knows that the sufferings and the infirmities of your life are exactly what you need in order to make you more like Jesus. Strength in weakness. That's why Paul writes later on, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We focus on the all things, I can do all things. Paul focuses on through Christ who strengthens me. See, the world has a completely different system for this, do they not? They measure accomplishments in terms of strength. God measures weakness. The world looks for ability. God looks for availability. And the longer that I serve in ministry, in fact, just serving the Christian life as a believer. It's not a success story so much as it is a survival story. We live in the American dream context where everything is supposed to be a great success, but in the kingdom of God, faithfulness is valued way over success. Can you endure? Can you survive? I just have to tell you, I stand before you this morning as a broken guy, <laughs> Just as a trainer breaks the will of the horse through the bridle, the Lord is constantly and consistently breaking my pride in order to humble me. And I'll tell you this, and you won't like it, God will do whatever it takes to break you. And you'll be better off for it in the process if you'll turn to Him. And the reason is it gets you off of dependence on you and starts making you depend on the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. He says, if I might be made conformable unto his death, faithfulness unto death, this resurrection from the dead, and the power of his resurrection, which we love to talk about, only comes through sharing in his sufferings. Brothers and sisters, when you live in the power of God, everything changes for you. You say, well, how do I live in His strength and in His power? I'm glad you asked. Obey Him. Do what He says. Give Him a blank check with your life, not just your finances, your time and your talent. Everything that you have, it belongs to Him anyway. He's the one that gave it to you. Give it back. Some of you who are here today, do you really honestly think you're here by accident. You say, well, I know about God. Sure, you know about God. And the little knowledge 
puffs up people who are ever learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. You say, well, I came with my family and friends, and I'm glad. But maybe the God of this universe has divinely appointed you to be here today so that he can call you unto himself. I wouldn't miss that appointment. We see wristbands sometimes, or t-shirts, talking about somebody's going through a significant illness, and they'll have a blank and then the person's name, and then it'll say strong after it. And you're trying to rally the person for that cause. Well, there's a sense in which I understand what we're trying to do there, but the Bible says it's actually when I'm weak that when I am, God is strongest in my life. And here's the thing. God wants what is best for you even when you don't want what is best for yourself because He wants something greater than what you want. He desires what you need. And he knows what you need before you even ask of him. This is what 2 Corinthians 3, 4-6 through 6 says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Have you thought about this, that you have this ministry? You have this life, this family, this spouse, by the mercy of God. Paul says it's like treasures in jars of clay. That's what the treasure is. The treasure is the gospel that we're all broken, we're all sinners in need of God. Jesus comes and takes the punishment that we deserve upon himself, breaks the curse of sin, is raised again on the third day that whosoever would believe and trust in Jesus as their atonement might have life. But this treasure, he says, the gospel is in jars of clay. What do we know about clay jars? They're fragile, they're vulnerable, they break. So do we. But when you are at your weakest, God is at His strongest in your life. Like what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Problem of Pain, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Hardly anyone grows close to God when things are easy. It just doesn't happen. But when the trials of life come, know that you have resurrection strength through crucifixion, weakness. We take a moment of personal privilege. I determined how I was going to work this story into the sermon. You know, sometimes preachers do that. You don't really know how it fits, but you think it fits somewhere and it might encourage somebody. That's where this is, so I'm giving you a full disclosure before it happens. This past week, I had the privilege of, of making a, a visit in the hospital to a lady I'd never met before. And um, her, her husband, or her son, was there in the hospital room with her and got to pray with her. And her son asked me on the way out the door, he said, uh, he said where are you from? I told him, I'm from Bowling Green. And he said, who was the name of the, the pastor in the church that we loved when we were there? And he couldn't remember, and of course I didn't know. So I'm about to walk out the door, and after about 15 seconds, he names my pastor and the home church where I'm from. You've got to understand something. I was, I was blessed to be named in, in my pastor's will. It was a great honor. He died almost penniless. People looked at what he did was foolish. And yet this man and his mother were saying, I've never seen someone so Christ-like, the love of God in their eyes. He said, he led me to the Lord. 
And see, the world looks at that and they say, oh, foolishness, you've just brainwashed people. God says that's actually the greatest strength that you can have because what the world sees as foolishness, God sees as wisdom, and what the world sees as weakness, God, through His power, has confounded the wisdom of the wise. He has brought weakness into this world to make to nothing the things that used to be mighty so that no flesh should glory in His presence. And brothers and sisters, when you live in the power of God, in resurrection strength, in crucifixion weakness, when you know the power of His resurrection and you share in the fellowship of His sufferings, that is the very purpose for which God has created you, and that is the very purpose for which you have been placed on this earth. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the broadcast. If you found it helpful, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. For more information, check us out online at veryefields.com.